0: But looking specifically this morning at the idea of trouble in the church, as Paul addresses it in verses 7 through 12. Let's pick it up, verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. would emasculate themselves let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us this morning God in heaven we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness and and Lord we need all those things and so I pray that you would by your spirit use this word uh, to do your good work uh, that we might be purified and encouraged that we might be convicted, that we might, Lord, be trained in righteousness to live our life for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be paying a whole lot of attention to what's going on in our world and in our nation to know that uh, we live in troubled times. And I'm not talking uh, necessarily about the pandemic. Uh, that will pass in time. I'm thinking specifically about the ever-widening gap that we're seeing in our country, um, between what could be called the conservative movement and the progressive movement. Uh, as a nation, we are profoundly and angrily divided. Uh, this past year, we saw acts of violence both on the right and on the left. And as you look at the great division in our, in our nation, uh, the question comes, how, how, how do you fix that? What's the fix for what's going on and what's happening in our, in our country? Uh, you see, the the problem is that the Judeo-Christian worldview that once provided a um, sort of agreed upon way of looking at the world, regardless of whether people were Christian or not, but that worldview has given way to secular and post-modern alternatives and paradigms, and, and so um, you're faced with the question, how could we possibly be united as a nation when we fundamentally disagree over the meaning of truth and what the world is about and what matters in the world? And of course, the answer is that without a revival of biblical religion, there is no fix. Without a revival of a fundamental understanding of who we are, what it means to be a person, a human, and why the world is here, and, and whether there's a, a, a day of judgment or not, without a sort of a common understanding of those things, there cannot be any lasting unity. Well, what is true of our nation is also true for the church. Uh, both in Paul's day and ours, Paul has been dealing with trouble in the church, and and. Uh, trouble that has pr- produced a great division in the church. Uh, people are, who formerly once called each other as brothers and sister, and they ate together, and they fellowship together, they, they had each other over to their homes. Now, they don't do that anymore. Something's happened. The church is deeply divided. And you can ask the same question. See, how could they not be divided when they disagree over the most basic meaning of the gospel? And so the gospel of grace that Paul had preached, the gospel that had been the foundation for the church and uh, the unity, for the unity of the church, that uh, foundation has been eroded uh, as, as men come in preaching another gospel, a, a, a slightly alternate gospel. It's, it's not, a re, uh, in their minds, a rejection of the old one, they're just adding something to it. Circumcision, law. Well, Paul's been waging war against these false teachers throughout the letter because um, they have brought a false gospel into the church. This 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 uh, added uh, this addition that they've brought to the gospel is a false gospel. And Paul has been just showing the nature of the error in the first four and a half chapters, and now here in our text, Paul deals specifically with the teachers and and um, and the trouble that they've brought to the church. So it, it's a relevant text for us today. We, um, the fact is that uh, false teachers always come into the church. And, and, and the, one of the things that I've learned over 25 years of ministry is that God's sheep are easily led astray. It's not hard. If a man is charismatic, if his message is deemed to be um, kind of new, culturally relevant, if it sounds biblical if it becomes the sort of the happening thing, I mean, people will happily receive it. If the Judaizers were able to lead all the Jewish Christians in the churches of Galatia, which Paul says is what happened, into this error, if they were able to lead even Peter and Barnabas into this error, well, then (laughs) it's likely that we are also susceptible. And they need to be on our toes. The, text, the, the issue that Paul deals with in this text is a very real and present danger for us and for our children. So I'm just going to, two main points. One, we're going to look at the false teachers, and then secondly, the true gospel. False teachers and the true gospel. And there'll be several things that uh, we'll note about the false teachers in our text. Just starting out generally with the problem, Paul begins in verse 7 by commending the Galatian believers. You were running well. They were doing magnificently. Paul had preached the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit had lit the fuse of faith and and they had believed that gospel and uh, they were obeying the truth. They were living in light of the gospel. It was wonderful to see. These Gentiles who had been as far from God as you could possibly imagine, now living confidently as sons and daughters of the Most High. Living by faith, living in grace. Living in all the joy and the freedom that was theirs in Christ Jesus. They were doing wonderfully well. But someone is now hindering them. Verse 7. Was troubling them. Verse 10. And unsettling them. Verse 12. Trouble had come to the church. Well, false teaching always brings trouble to the church. Inevitably. Bad theology will always bear bad fruit. And in the Galatian churches, the theological error—you could say—well, this is just a disagreement over, you know, the meaning of the gospel. Well, yeah, it's a disagreement over the meaning of the gospel that has revealed itself in this incredible um, hypocrisy on the basis of Peter and 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 Barnabas, and this this devastating division in the church, where where um, those who were circumcised no longer felt that they could, as a gospel issue, eat with people who are uncircumcised. That they would somehow, by by fellowshipping with brothers and sisters, blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ, they would be defiling themselves. So circumcision became the issue, the thing, the thing that mattered in the church. And the church was absolutely divided over it. Uh, You will see this happen every time the true gospel gets supplanted as the main thing in a church. It could be some moral issue, smoking or drinking maybe. It could be um, some debated doctrine. It could be uh, some political stance or some social cause. When that becomes the main thing, the thing that people are talking about, the thing that they're being trained in, uh, the thing that counts... Well, you're going to find division. Lines get drawn. The church is quickly divided. It's exactly what happened in Galatia. And the question that Paul has for them is a very simple question. Who did this to you? Verse 7. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The, the word hindered here, uh, it can mean to, to cut off. Like in a, you're running this race and someone just cuts in and, uh, and, and you're knocked out of the race. And Paul says, well, who did that to you? Uh, you were doing so well, and now you're in danger of falling away from grace. How did that? How did that happen? You see, Paul knows the answer. He's asking the question because he wants them to face the reality of what's happened to them. He wants them to uh, to own it and to identify those who were troubling them. You see, Paul, the apostle, could stand there and point it out all day long, but. And he has been in, in, in the book of letter of Galatians. But until they own it. Until they say, uh, yeah, how did that happen to us? We used to be this, this, this tightly knit community of, of faith. And we were all about the same thing. We were all about Jesus. And now, now something's happened. How did that happen to us? Who cut in on us? What are their names? You see, if they don't own it to that level, they'll never deal with it. And they have to deal with it because it's destroying them. And there's something very sinister about what's happening to them. Paul um, asks them to consider the source of this problem. This this persuasion, he says in verse 8, is not from him who calls you. That's a pretty ominous sentence. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul wants them to understand that they did not just sort of stumble into this problem, into this trouble, this error. Uh, they, someone talked them into it. Someone persuaded them, convinced them to believe things that are not true. And uh, that is, is, of course, how false teaching works, isn't it? Uh, it it's what false teachers do. And, and I was, as I was uh, you know, studying this and, and preparing this, I just thought, you know, you can ask the question, How did Rob Bell get thousands, thousands of people, most of them from solid evangelical and reformed backgrounds, to adopt his false teaching concerning the Bible and the gospel? How did that happen? And the answer is just simply, he talked them into it. He, he He just did what I'm doing. He just talked to them. But he did it very cleverly, he did it winsomely, did it with a lot of catchy illustrations, did it uh, with professionally produced videos, did it in a way that seemed very culturally relevant, it seemed to be um, very concerned about lost people, it, it, it seemed, right, to be good. But, but he just talked, and people were persuaded To believe that maybe the the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is not a necessary spring for the trampoline of your faith. And that, that, uh, that, that maybe the Bible is, instead of being the revealed word of God to us, is man's word about God. And maybe there is no such thing as hell. And people believed it. You see, you've got to wake up to how these things happen in the church. It doesn't just sort of, accidentally, uh, error doesn't just accidentally or magically appear. Errors introduced. uh, Men come and persuade. And that's exactly what's happened in, in, in the churches of Galatia. They had been persuaded to believe things that were not true, things that were actually opposed to the gospel. And Paul is saying, it's not from him who called you. It's and the reason he can be sure of that, you see, is because it's contrary to the gospel of God. In, in, uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul had said, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The one who had called them, God himself, had called them to a gospel of grace. The grace uh, of God for sinners in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that had proved to be the power of God unto their salvation. And so it just stands to reason that a different gospel, the Judaizer gospel, the gospel about circumcision and keeping the law and, and um, with God's help being good enough right to be saved, well, that could not possibly have come from God. Reichen says if the salvation God offers comes by grace, then what the, G- the Galatians were hearing from those who were trying to cut them off was obviously not from God. So... If it's not from God, where is it coming from? What is is Paul suggesting here? I mean, is is Paul actually insinuating that these well-meant, though misled, we can agree that they were wrong, but but these well-meant men uh, professing Christians who knew their Bibles, who've come from Jerusalem, is Paul trying to suggest that these men are uh, actually agents of the devil? Seriously? Seriously? Yeah. That's it. It's exactly what he's suggesting. You see, Paul has no illusions about the spiritual struggle that takes place in the heavenly realms when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6:12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knows what he's up against. And Paul has no doubt that the persuasion has demonic origins. Does not mean these men were demons. It's very possible they were well-meant. But their teaching, their error, is a satanic attempt to destroy the gospel witness of the church, and it nearly worked. We just have to remember, friends, that the, the devil's favorite weapon to, to emasculate the church, the, the devil's favorite weapon to undermine the witness of the church is not persecution. When, when persecution happens, the, the witness of the church usually shines. His favorite weapon is false teaching. Mike Horton, in his excellent book, Christless Christianity, points out that when it comes to destroying the witness of the church, quote, Satan knows from experience that sowing heresy and schism is far more effective than persecution. In order to push us off point, he says, all that Satan has to do is to throw several spiritual fads or moral and political crusades and other relevance operations into our field of vision. He lulls us to sleep as we trim our message to the banality of popular culture and invoke Christ's name for anything and everything but salvation from the coming judgment. American churches are rife with this. Uh, we, lo- we, we use the name of Jesus for spiritual fads and moral campaigns and political crusades and uh, justice... Um, uh, you know, social justice issues for uh, just, I think that, that some of the biggest things, we can use it, uh, you know, Jesus can be an ambassador for the American, you know, American, the American way, American exceptionalism, a, a religion of civil religion. Well, that, that's a false religion, right? It doesn't matter. You can make him a social justice warrior. You can make him, you know, waving the American flag. It, it doesn't matter. You've, you've, you've confused Jesus, and you've, you've gotten the gospel wrong. And you've buried the true witness of the church with devastating effect. So Paul says, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just as a little yeast has a dramatic impact on the whole loaf, well, a little false teaching left unchecked will impact the entire church with devastating effect. Again, churches of Galatia exhibit A. But throughout church history you see this. It's what the devil is about. Well, what's the judgment? Verse 10. Paul expresses in verse 10, uh, his confidence in the believer's response, right? I I am confident, he says, in the Lord that you will take no other view. Uh, He's confident because he knows that that God has called them and the work that God begins, God carries out to completion. And um, that though God's children may stumble when they are admonished or rebuked by the word of God, God's children will reveal themselves by submitting to the word of God. And so Paul is convinced that they will. That they're going to they're they're heed because he believes they truly do um, belong to the Lord. Now what about the false teachers? Well, they will either repent or face judgment. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, it's not likely that Paul didn't know who these men were. I think uh, the point is that it doesn't matter who they are. Any, anyone who, who comes bearing a false message is going to face judgment. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. It's, he's saying the same thing. The word penalty here, it's the same word uh, that's translated judgment. These these men will bear the judgment. These men will bear the wrath of God. That's not a Pauline thought. That's a a Jesus thought, right? Remember, Jesus said, better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and be cast into the sea than to mislead my little ones. God hates false teaching, He, He hates those who mislead his sheep. And he promises to judge false teaching. John MacArthur, I remember, once he just said that there's nothing worse that a human being can do than to mislead God's people with false teaching. I think that's exactly right. I think that makes a, that makes a serial killer look tame. When you mislead God's sheep, so that you are destroying their soul, so that you are burying the witness of the church, you're 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 covering over the, the clear gospel message. When, when you're doing that, as a man standing up in front and 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 uh, trying to use scripture to, to to do it right, there's nothing worse you can do as a person. It's an awful, awful thing that Paul's pointing out here. For the time being, Paul says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Um, Now, there's all kinds of debate. You can read about it um, in the commentaries. Uh, Is Paul speaking metaphorically, hyperbolically, literally? And should apostles talk like this? Uh, That'll be some of the questions. But don't miss the main point, you see. Paul is speaking of men who were troubling the church, causing strife and division in the church because they were twisting the gospel and opposing the gospel. And Paul loves the church of Christ. And Paul loves the gospel of God's free grace for sinners through the death of Jesus Christ. And Paul is infuriated at the damage and division and deception being caused by these purveyors of a false religion. He's incensed. John Stott says, his sentiment sounds to our ears both coarse and malicious. We may be quite sure, however, that it was due neither to an intemperate spirit nor to a thirst for revenge, but to his deep love for the people of God and the gospel of God. I venture to say that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. Maybe our failure to be incensed with false teaching comes less from the fact that we're just sort of easy-come-easy-go people, or that we're just trying to be polite, kind, and maybe it just comes from, we don't, we, don't, we don't love the church of Jesus Christ like Paul did, or the gospel of Jesus Christ the way Paul did. Maybe that's what's going on. Well, what is that true gospel? Paul points to it in verse 11. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You see, some were apparently saying that Paul was okay with circumcision, and in one sense that was true. Paul had Timothy circumcised. And he did that because it opened a door for Paul to do ministry to the Jews. But uh, Paul has just made it very clear circumcision or uncircumcision, uncircumcision it makes no difference it doesn't matter now when it comes to things of salvation and paul clearly was never preaching circumcision to preach circumcision is to say that circumcision is a necessary part of being made right with god well that's anathema to paul what paul preached was christ crucified jesus the son of god nailed to a cross A spear ripped into his side so blood and water flows out. That's the the gospel that Paul preached. Remember in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul had done that for them. He painted the picture for them of the innocent, spotless Lamb of God made a sacrifice for for sinners by being nailed to a cross and that message you see is why Paul is being persecuted he's he's relentlessly persecuted the Jews hate him the Romans hate him why why is why is that message so offensive it's foolishness to the Greeks it's it's a stumbling block to the Jews why what is the offense of the cross well here's the offense of the cross It is God's damning indictment of mankind. You see, the message of the cross is that every single person justly deserves eternal punishment in hell. Every person. Even little babies. That's the message of the cross. And the cross says on top of that that we can do absolutely nothing to rescue ourselves. The cross, you see, says that what Jesus endured is what we deserved, the wrath of God. And, and the cross says that humanity is utterly incapable of redeeming itself, that, that it took the very Son of God And by sending his own son to die in our place, that God is putting the world on notice that there's nothing that we can do, no sacrifice that we can make, no devotion that we can offer that can be sufficient to wash away our sin and to make us able to stand before the judgment throne of a holy God. That's the message of the cross. That there is one way to be rescued from the fire of hell that is coming. The wrath of God that is coming. And that way is by a gift of grace purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the offense of the cross. It deeply offends the human race. It sounds incredibly uncharitable to the human race. That's why so many churches in our country... Prefer a kinder, gentler gospel. Earlier this month, uh, Joanne and I were driving to Philadelphia. I was going to teach a class on preaching. And we're driving through some town in Pennsylvania, and I noticed um, along the highway, some well-meaning church had paced, placed a billboards, a few of them, along the highway. Uh, and one, one of them said, a hurting, question mark, Jesus offers healing. Another one said, anxious, question mark, Jesus offers peace. And I thought to myself that is a perverted gospel. It grossly underestimates the nature of human need and it ends up selling Jesus as an emotional therapy product. Now that is not that was not their intent. But but you see, churches throughout the country abound in that sort of language. That's the gospel that's brought. Jesus as as an emotional healer. Jesus as the one who can who can you know restore to you your dignity and your self-worth. If if you don't believe me, just go out and look. Listen. It's well meant. It's just not the gospel. You see, where are the billboards that say dead in sin? Bound for hell? Jesus died to rescue you from the wrath that is to come. That's the gospel. I know it sounds harsh. It sounds sounds offensive. It's, It's the gospel. That's what Paul preaches. We preach Christ and Him Crucified. Why was he crucified? To rescue sinners from the wrath of God. That's why he was crucified. And anything, anything that undermines that, anything that, that, that covers that over in some way, because we're interested in other causes, it undermines the gospel. It covers it, buries the gospel. That's why you see the pure gospel matters. People people get lost by diluted gospels. You, you just look at church history, and you and you see how how over and over again the church will get off onto other things. They'll get off onto uh, you know a a social gospel, or they'll get off onto you you know who can who can you know get the highest score on the theology test. Now those things matter, but they're not the gospel. I was just. Do you know why I left the CRC? It's 1990, 1994, um, and um, I, was, I took a class. No, this was summer of '93. Summer of '93. I took a class at Calvin Seminary because I was tending to go into ministry in the CRC. Women in office thing was 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 taking place. I was concerned about that, uh, but I took a class because I, I was intending to move forward. It was a class on church planting. And the the professor put up uh, on the blackboard, he said, we used to think that God speaks his gospel to the church, draws an arrow, God, church, arrow, and the church speaks the gospel to the world. That's how we used to think. Now we know that God speaks the gospel, God speaks the gospel to the world, and God speaks the gospel to the church, and the Church speaks the gospel to the world, and the world speaks the gospel to the church. Well, I was confused. And so I went to him and said, Well, how does the world speak the gospel to the church? And he says, Well, in 1976, the province of Ontario, in Hamilton, the city of Hamilton, in Ontario, Canada, passed a law mandating handicap ramps for every public building. I was still confused. I said, well, how is that the gospel? I said, that's not the gospel. And he said, well, we clearly have very different understandings of what the gospel is. And he was clearly right. The gospel I was taught has nothing, it, it is nothing you do. It is nothing that you feel. The gospel is a message that comes to you about what God has done in Jesus Christ for you. That's the gospel. Now, the gospel has ramifications. But the ramifications are never the gospel. And as soon as you confuse the two, you're subverting the gospel. Friends, we got to be clear about this. People get lost Otherwise, You can take health-wealth teaching. You can take American civil religion. You can take social justice activism. You can take Jesus as the healer of the emotions. They are diluted, truncated gospels and will leave sinners dead in their sin because the message of Christ crucified gets drowned out. And that's the essence that's the power of God and salvation. That is our hope. That's our life. That's our peace. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Galatians 1. He died bearing our sin so that we might be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus died as an outcast so that we might be made sons and daughters of the Most High God. He died in ab- abject poverty that we might be made heirs of all the riches of glory. Jesus The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That is the gospel of the grace of God. And friends, for the sake of your soul and for the sake of your children, don't let anyone ever persuade you otherwise. Amen. Oh God in heaven, we are easily misled. And Father, we uh, can easily also in our pride think that being right makes us righteous. I thank you, Lord, that the gospel absolutely humbles all of us. It's not our orthodoxy. It's not our intentions. It's not our activism. It's not our patriotism. None of this counts. But the only thing that counts is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God crucified for me. And that faith working itself out in in love as, as I humbly receive the gospel. And that gospel powerfully transforms my life. Oh God, I pray that we would love the church and we would love the gospel so deeply that we would not tolerate substitutes. We would not put up with them. We'd be willing, Lord, to name the error and, and the teachers and, and warn each other and encourage each other, not because we're saved by being pure, right, but, but because this gospel is the only gospel that can save us. It's the only gospel that can save our children. And the devil is at work and at war with the church of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I just, I just pray that you'd give us wonderful, humble courage to know the truth and to love the truth and, and to share the truth with a world that desperately needs to know. That we'd be unashamed to speak the offensive message of the cross, knowing that you will use that message to gather your lost, to gather the elect, to build up the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close by singing together the gospel song celebrating the core truth of what God has done for us in Jesus. receive the blessing of the Lord your God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance, his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.